Well, good morning, everyone. We are into October. Beautiful fall weather outside, cool and crisp. I know some of you are a little nervous because you know from here on out it gets a lot colder, and you might not like that cold weather. But some of us really, really enjoy this time of year and don't mind the cold weather too much. So we are continuing in our study through Mark today. We're memorizing a verse of Scripture uh, this month from the gospel that we're studying. In fact, the next few months, our Bible memorization will be from Mark's gospel, since that's where we're at. So this is Mark 7.15. Let's say it together today. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Mark 7.15. And we will actually get to that text today Uh, in our study. Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, at the very end of chapter 6, and working through uh, all of chapter 7. Mark has introduced us to the Messiah, Jesus as the Son of God and the Son of Man. He has shown us, uh, shown Jesus to be the one who pleases the Father, the one who's indwelt by the Spirit, the one who is also despised and rejected among his own people. Mark's gospel has also revealed to us Jesus as a miracle worker, the calmer of the seas, the healer of the infirm, the one with power over demons, even able to speak life into the dead. And all of this Mark is writing as an encouragement and a witness to the early Roman church that finds itself in dire straits. It is the ambition of the gospel writers that their first readers would find endurance and motivation to continue as they were confronted with the power of the good news, the life, the work, the ministry, the power of Jesus. Good news for a church in duress. Jesus is Lord, good news, he is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah. Good news, he has overwhelmingly conquered the opposition, vanquishing his foes, the greatest of whom were Satan, sin, and death. And now, for the church in turmoil, facing their own opposition, and standing against the forces of darkness, sin, and death in their own culture and communities, what were going to be some takeaways within the works and the words of Jesus that could motivate them, that might motivate us as a church today to continue in the work that God has given us to do. When we as a church or we as individuals are faced with cold-hearted or even hard-hearted opposition to the gospel, what can we glean from the example of Jesus to help us forge ahead in our great calling, which is a difficult task, the task of disciple-making and discipleship in the world today. The life and ministry of Jesus is going to answer the questions that are presented to modern Christian communities today. How can we, as a church, how can we, as individuals, continue to grow disciples in hard and cold-hearted ministry environments? And we have a faithful and true place to turn and look today for answers to these sorts of vital questions. So if you have your Bibles, you want to take them and turn to Mark chapter 6. 
We're going to begin in verse 45, reading in verse 45 today. And before we do, let's pray and ask God for his help during our study time. Lord, we thank you for the word. We thank you for its power and its effect. Father, we recognize our own inefficiency, our own inability to follow after you without these wonderful tools that you have given us, your spirit, your word, the fellowship of the saints, prayer, so many of these things. And Lord, we turn now to one of them, the study of your word in community as a body of Christ. And we know that you are pleased in this activity. We also know that you are working. You intend for this to be a time of corporate study, not individual, but we come together surrounding the text and we know that you are working. You're active now. Your spirit is alive and he is moving, applying to each of us exactly what we need for today and for the days ahead. So we ask that you would change our hearts, change our minds where they need to be changed, transform us into the image of your son, Jesus. Help us to live and love in a way that honors and glorifies you as we study your word together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 52. <clears throat> Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This portion of Mark that we're looking at today is bookended by accounts of Jesus' miraculous feeding of large groups of individuals with very little Food. In the text immediately before this, in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44, we read of the feeding of the 5,000, while in the beginning of Mark chapter 8, uh, it opens with the account of Jesus feeding the 4,000. These are two separate accounts, not the same account with different numbers, but separate accounts according to Jesus' own words and testimony. Both events are given as an example to Jesus' disciples of how Jesus sustains and is able to provide much when it seems that very little resources are available. And throughout the scriptures, food and spiritual growth, discipleship, are closely linked. The Word of God is our essential tool. It's, it's 
what one of the tools that God is using today to help us grow in our faith and is often compared to food or nourishment for our minds and bodies. We've read about how the word of God is like honey, right? It's good for us, sweet. And while Paul, in other New Testament texts, explores the ministry of the word and its ability to nurture and facilitate spiritual growth, development, and flourishing. In Mark's gospel, the feeding miracles very appropriately then begin and end this portion of Mark's writings that are largely dedicated to the discipling ministry of Jesus. Much has happened in early weeks and months following the initiation of Jesus' earthly ministry. His disciples are learning what it means to walk with him. Jesus is a different kind of leader. He is so different. It's hard for us to overstate how much of a different sort of rabbi Jesus was compared to the other traditional rabbis of the disciples' day. He was totally different. The disciples are faced with both what would be wonders and complexities that go along with following Christ. And Jesus, as we see in the feeding of the 5,000 immediately before this text, he has invited their participation in his ministry. Now, we've spoken about this before. As the Son of God and the Son of Man, Jesus had all the power within himself to come to earth and do everything that God called him to do sufficiently by himself. But that's not how God intended or how Jesus chose to do it. Instead, he called disciples unto himself, and when he did, he didn't ask them to take a back seat and, hey guys, watch me, watch what I'm going to do. That's not how it was. He actually invited, encouraged, trained, and equipped them to participate in the ministry that he had been given. And this is an important component of discipleship in a hard-hearted world. We need to recognize as a body of Christ today that all who follow Jesus have an important and valuable role to play in the disciple-making work of the church. Now, I have heard this said, and perhaps you have as well over the years, I don't know what I could do. I don't really have any kind of any kind of special giftedness or anything. How could the Lord use me in the church? I don't have a really powerful testimony to share. I, don't, I can't sing. I said that a lot. You don't want me to sing. I have to tell people, you don't really want me to sing. I promise. <laughs> Step away from the mic sometime. All those things. Some of us have giftings in that area. Others do not. Right? I just want you to know today, friends, Whatever gifts you've been given by the Lord, however significant or perhaps maybe however insignificant you think them to be, they are vital, vital to the life of the body of Christ. Every part is needed. And that is an essential component to understand in disciple making and discipleship. Nobody should come on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night or any time thinking, there's nothing I can do. There's no way I can contribute. I don't know how to be involved. I don't know. Everyone has a part. And sometimes in some seasons of our life, just 
being present, physically present, is the part that we can play. After Jesus and his disciples had fed the 5,000, the people, you remember, and I believe it's in John's account or one of the other accounts, they tried to take Jesus and make him king by force. And Jesus and his disciples escaped this attempt. And now, at the beginning of the text we were reading today, Jesus has dismissed his disciples to head off to their next ministry location while he goes away to do what? Where is Jesus headed? To prayer. He's going to pray. And before we talk a little bit about that, we want to pause here because we don't want to miss the echoes of the Old Testament in the New. What have we seen in the feeding miracles? Bread has been provided from heaven. The people have been abundantly provided for. Jesus now, in this scene, is ascending, like Moses did, up a mountain to commune with the Father. And very soon, Jesus is going to approach the waters. But as the greater Moses, he is not going to need to separate them. Instead, what does he do? Did you ever wish you could walk right on him? Jesus did. Peter did. For a little bit. Right? Back on the mountain, we uncover another regular pattern in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus consistently, throughout his ministry in all of the Gospels, he's making time for solitude and communication with the Father. And another takeaway for disciple-making in a cold-hearted world is to not neglect the priority and the practice of solitude and prayer. Friends, Jesus prioritized these things when he was on earth. He was God. And these things were important to him. Solitude and prayer, they are essential components to any church, to any ministry. Nobody had more work to do and less time to do it than Jesus. And yet all of the Gospels reveal to us in numerous places that Jesus took time to pray and find solitude with God. And not only was this advantageous to Jesus and his ministry effectiveness, but it was also a powerful, powerful example for those who were following him. Refreshed and renewed, Jesus looks out on the waters and he sees once again that the disciples have found themselves in a predicament. And so Jesus walks out onto the waters When Moses had found himself in the midst of his own storm, if you remember, he was desperate to see the glory of God. Again, echoes of the Old Testament here. Do you remember how God responded when Moses was desperate to see his glory? What did God do? He took Moses, he hid him in the cleft of the rock, and he allowed his glory to do what? Pass by. Don't miss that echo. What does the text tell us that Jesus intended to do to the disciples in the boat, pass by. They're in a desperate moment. They're in a distressing situation. They're facing their own storm. The language is intentional. It's inviting us to imagine the similarities between their distress and Moses' distress, and God will once again allow his glory in the moment to pass by. Friends, Jesus sees us in our distress and our struggles, and he promises 
to be with us right there. How wonderful and how valuable for a church to know this, a church that's desiring to live faithfully but is facing the winds and the waves of opposition from every side. That was the church that Mark was writing to, and in many ways, in many situations, those winds and those waves face our churches and churches around the world today. Now, in other accounts, this is where Peter walks out onto the water, keeping his eyes fixed on Christ, but when he looks down, what happens? He's consumed by the waves. But here, the writer informs us that the disciples, they're already full of anxiety from the winds of the waves, and it's interesting, the word that's used here in the Greek is the word that we get our word phantom from. They think Jesus is a ghost. He's not physically. It's Jesus. He's really there. And he's going to make three important statements for his disciples. And church, they're good statements for us as well. As we strain against the headwinds of a hard-hearted world, it is important for us to remember and keep before us these three phrases. Have courage. In other words, keep going. Keep going. Have courage. It is I. Jesus is with us. We're not alone. How comforting for them to hear those words from Jesus on that boat in the midst of those waves, in the midst of the winds, in the midst of the storm. It is I. I'm here. And then, do not be afraid. And he calms the winds. And I, I struggle, and maybe you did today as well, when we got to the end of that passage. Did you struggle with the response of the disciples a little bit? Did that stick, stick to you a little bit? How did they respond? They, they didn't understand the loaves, and they were what? What did it say? Hard-hearted. Do you remember Moses' prayer to God? These stiff-necked people. (laughs) Why did you do this, Lord? We never see Jesus necessarily praying that way in the New Testament, but I just wonder if you ever felt (laughs) just a moment in times like these. You see, they had not fully realized yet who Jesus was was they were learning they were growing they were walking with him but they weren't yet fully aware and despite their lack of seeing him for who he truly is isn't it amazing that jesus remains patient and present with them another encouraging reminder for the disciple making church in the world today when the gospel is met with astonishment a lack of belief or a lack of understanding hard-heartedness Don't bail or abandon. Instead, step in and continue on together. That's what Jesus does. We just move right on, move right into the next grouping of verses here in verses 53 to 56 of chapter 6. Jesus doesn't leave them. They're hard-hearted. They're astonished. What's going on? 
Verse 53, after they crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and anchored there. As they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized Jesus. They ran through that whole region and began to bring the sick on mats to wherever he was rumored to be. And wherever he would go, into villages, towns, or countrysides, they would place the sick in the marketplaces and would ask him if they could just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. And as we look back on chapter 6, taken as a whole, it reinforces for the early church the truth that Jesus is Lord. Even though his ministry is rejected by many, even though it's sometimes received and even witnessed with cold-hearted and hard-heartedness, he continues to walk in step with the Father. And through the example and testimony of Jesus then, the early church, as it faced its own persecution and opposition in Rome, with very few resources, with many winds of resistance to resolve and to navigate, they had a reliable strategy in Jesus' life and ministry for their own effectiveness. When turmoil, when cold-hearted indifference and confusion surrounds, be courageous Church, Jesus is with us today. Keep going. Jesus is working in and through us. He is going to be faithful to accomplish the work that he has laid before us to do. And his faithfulness should inform and motivate our faithfulness. His words an example. And they're all the motivation we need to continue. So as we step into chapter 7 then, we're going to once again be reintroduced to this other group that's always around. We know them, right? They're around throughout the entire earthly life and ministry of Jesus. In, in a broad sense, we can call them the religious leaders. They're always challenging the words and practices of Jesus. It's a group from within Judaism, The teachings and the traditions of the Pharisees remained very present and influential in the early church, deepening the division, stoking confusion and hostility and even contention among those who claimed to follow Christ. We do not need to read too far into Paul's letters and other writings and the writings of some of the other apostles to see and to hear of the devastating and divisive consequences that these influences had within the early church. So a question might be, how is the church to continue in the work of disciple-making when it faces resistance and opposition from within its own structures? These are the lessons that we're going to confront as we step into chapter 7. How does Jesus handle the questions and interrogations of the religious leaders? Look at verses 1 to 8. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. All right, just generally, let me just pause there and say, please wash your hands before you eat. (laughs) For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands holding to the tradition of the elders, which was to sing the alphabet while they washed them. No, I'm just kidding. I added that. 
And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Boy. Sometimes Jesus had strong words, but he's just quoting the Bible. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. You leave the commandment of God and hold on to the tradition of men. Now, it's interesting here. Mark is including these parenthetical state, uh, statements. You see the parentheses in your text. And, and they give clarification to the traditions of the Pharisees. And that gives us evidence that Mark was writing to an audience that was most likely non-Jewish. Because he gives this insight for them so that they can understand. To say that the traditions were important to the Jews would be an understatement. There were many rabbis that would teach that following the traditions, their traditions, was more important than following Scripture itself. How about that? Two quotes. One teacher, one rabbi known as Eliezer, stated, quote, He who expounds the Scriptures in opposition to the traditions has no share in the world to come. End quote. The Talmud, one of, uh, one of the religious texts in Judaism, records the following statement, quote, It is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict Scripture itself, end quote. But we, church, before we point the finger, must be careful in our own judgments, for we, too, can be very much guilty as well of clinging to our own traditions. Much like other texts in the New Testament, I'm going to read this as a mirror, examining our own propensity to do the same things that the Pharisees did. And there are, friends, traditions. Traditions related, and please take offense to none of this, but I am going to put my head down and not make eye contact with anybody. There are traditions related to styles of music, modes and methods of ministry, styles of preaching, church polity, and the like. They fill the bylaws of churches all over the world, the operating manuals, sometimes, oftentimes, weighing down and pouring water on viable and good opportunities for ministry. There is still very much human tradition that informs, governs, and dictates our own ministry habits and practices today. Many of these things are cultural. Many. The issue here is defilement. Jesus, quoting from Isaiah 29, reminds the Pharisees that what really matters is what's on the inside, not the outside. 
On the outside, much could be said and done to give the appearance of holiness, righteousness, while the heart could still inside remain defiled and corrupt. So Jesus gives an example in verses 9 to 13. He talks about caring for elderly parents. Right? And one of the things that the people back then would do when they had elderly parents to get out of caring for those parents is they would say, well, any money that I had set aside to care for you, mom and dad, uh, I'm sorry, I've given all that money to the Lord. I don't know what you're going to do. That's the Lord's money. I can't help. Oh, Jesus doesn't like that very much. (laughs) He does not like that very much. He actually goes after it. He goes after it. And instead of the reliance on the traditions, Jesus actually reorders authority and gives Moses' writings, which had been given to Moses by God on the mountain, priority over the human traditions that had orally been handed down. Look at verse 10. For Moses said, this is the priority that God gives. His word above human traditions. Verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever insults his father or mother must be put to death. Now, could you imagine the religious leaders that had gathered, that had practiced that, that heard Jesus say that? Put yourself right there in that moment and imagine Jesus is saying those words in an audience of people who had done the very thing that he was saying. That he was condemning. He's insinuating that their neatly tradition Corbin trick was actually dishonoring and insulting to their parents and warranted the execution of any who practiced it. Mm. Jesus shows us over and over again in his ministry for the church to continue to effectively make disciples in a hard-hearted world we must give priority to God's word above human tradition no questions it must happen and that is hard even when those human traditions appear righteous. How much more righteous could I be than giving everything I have to God? It all is his. I don't know how I'm going to take care of my parents. I have given it all to him. How much more righteous, how much more spiritual on the outside can we look? But within, there hasn't been serious transformation. Jesus now draws his audience in and he goes even deeper. It gets more uncomfortable, friends. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Jesus' words, please, not mine. Verses 14 to 23. He's not going to let them off the hook. This is convicting. Verse 14. Jesus called the people to him again and he said to them, hear me. All of you. Now remember that. You might want to underline that. Hear me. Hear me. All of you. And understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person 
or what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. Look at that parenthetical statement. Isn't that amazing? And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Mm. Many issues that faced the early church regarded who could or could not eat what kind of food, and if we could eat food, sacrifice the idols or not. So many of those questions Jesus is settling right here. Friends, human tradition is a persistent enslaver. Because it promises us comfort while lulling us into complacency. The ministry methods and modes that once worked, the human traditions that once worked, would no longer work for this new thing that God was doing in the person and work of Jesus. Sometimes the methods and the modes, the styles and the preferences can become are idols, and we will justify them by any means necessary, even sometimes, friends, by using scriptures out of context in ways they were never meant to be used to endorse or encourage the continuation of traditions that are man-made. This was the very idea behind Corbin. How can we argue with someone that's giving everything to God? Jesus always sees behind and beyond the outer behaviors into the inner motivations, and we very much dislike it because it challenges our own self-created images of self-righteousness. Friends, I preach to myself. It's challenging to me, too. We are all individually and corporately guilty of this, and even now we may feel a bit uncomfortable when confronted with texts like this that Jesus uh, would call these things out and speak so boldly about these things. But there's an opportunity here, friends, for our hearts to be changed, for us to grow, so that we can flourish as disciple-makers in the world that God has planted us in today as it is. And the scriptures remind us over and over again, especially in the Psalms, sing to the Lord a new song. God works through the tools, the methods, the modes, the styles, the preferences available today to draw those who are not yet believing unto himself, even when sometimes those things might be a bit unsettling and discomforting to us. And I can hear the argument, friends. I've, I've grown up with it, and I understand the challenge. But we can't allow the culture to creep in and infect the church. Right? Yes. We've all heard that. We've all said it. I've said it. It already has. 
It already is. We are planted in the world just as Jesus was sent into the world. And we are invited to reach the world with the tools that we have today available to do it. And at the heart of this text, Jesus is giving us the most important thing that we need to remember, that the greatest threat to our own defilement does not come from the outside, but rather from where? I told you it was hard, guys. It's hard for me this week. I am so uncomfortable this week with this text. As we are distracted with creative ways to try to keep the culture from influencing or corrupting the church, perhaps we're distracted by the reality that our own corrupt and disheveled hearts in many ways already has. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. The heart is hopelessly, hopelessly dark and deceitful, a puzzle that no one can figure out. But I, God, search the heart and examine the mind. I get to the heart of the human. I get to the root of things. I treat them as they really are, not as they pretend to be. Isn't that what Jesus is doing? Isn't that what we're seeing right here? In this text in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is in so many ways living out what Jeremiah chapter 17 said God is and God would do. Jesus is doing it. You see, friends, I have found in my own life, and perhaps you might agree, it's far more easier and comfortable for me to point out the sins and the problems of other people and of this world than to confront the dark and difficult realities that exist in my own heart. Jesus is not as much concerned with outside defilement as he is with inside submission and obedience to his words and his ways. And so it is amazing what Jesus does in this text, because this is a pattern in his ministry. He is not just going to say this in the face of the religious leaders. He is actually going to practice it in a way that's going to drive home the point. Where is he heading? He's heading to Tyre and Sidon among the Gentile believers. And he didn't want anyone to know. Because could you imagine the slander? How could he go there and into that house? Who does he think he is? That's not very spiritual behavior. Why does he care for all these outsiders? Doesn't he care about our laws and our traditions and the things that we value? What about the way that they live? Isn't he concerned that he's going to become unclean and defiled? What kind of influence are these Gentile people having on him? What if these Gentile teachings and practices stain our beloved traditions of Judaism? Verse 24. From there he rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house 
and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. I love that. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came. And you remember last week the pattern? What was everyone doing as they came to Jesus? Here it is again. Falling down at his feet. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. She begged him, cast out the demon of my daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. We don't have a dog, so there's lots of crumbs under our table. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is one of the only recorded miracles in the ministry of Jesus where he performs a miracle without being in the physical presence of the person needing help. And there's this pattern in Mark of people coming and falling at the feet of Jesus. And this is what some of life's most difficult circumstances drive us to. This posture, the power of trauma and tragedy in our lives move us to this humble posture of submission, of worship, of confession, of intercession at the feet of Jesus. And friends, what a good place to be at the feet of Jesus. Jesus reminds the woman of his ministry priority. He came to the children of Israel. That's what he's saying to her. He's in Gentile territory. But she sees right through that. I love the way she responds. Jesus says, for this statement, you may go on your way. The demon has left your child. Mm. Amazing. And again, the presence here of food Right, crumbs falling from a table in a portion of Mark that's bookended by miraculous feedings. Jesus is again connecting spood, food with spiritual and physical nourishment. The woman's faith is strong. He's impressed. And he sends her back home to a daughter who's been set free. We often talk about living and sharing our faith with courage and boldness. We hear that in the church a lot. Be bold. Get out there. Live your faith. Share your faith. Friends, I believe that in this text we're confronted with two very courageous and bold examples of what living our faith out looks like. Beginning with the Gentile woman, she approaches Jesus full of faith. Despite all of the social customs and traditions of her day. She's unconcerned that her people are historically considered enemies of the Jews. She's not a Jew herself. She's unconcerned about the fact that she is a woman and Jesus is a man. She's in a desperate situation. Her daughter's in great need, and by her face, she boldly and courageously approaches Jesus, and she knows in her heart of hearts that he can intercede and do something about her situation. And Jesus, on his part, is demonstrating his own courageous faithfulness to God. And what that looks like when it's pressured by the traditions and practices 
of the religious leaders. How could you, Jesus? You can hear them in the background. It's intentional in the text. Faithful disciple-making in a cold-hearted world requires the courage to, when necessary, buck the comforts of tradition, practice, and human-pleasing piety in our efforts to reach and care for those that God has called us to. And now this, as we conclude. You remember in just a few verses back, when Jesus said in verse 14, he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me. You see, there was an issue in Jesus' life and ministry. He was proclaiming the truth. He was sharing the good news. And seeing, the people could not see. And hearing, they could not hear. And their human traditions and the law kept their tongue twisted from the ability to share the true nature and freedom that came in a life with Christ. And over and over again in Mark's gospel, Mark uses the healing accounts to teach us something about the hearts and the lives of the people that Jesus was ministering to. So when you read these healing accounts in Mark's gospel, know that there's something greater going on behind them that's evidence to the reality of the hearts of the people Jesus was walking with. Verse 31. He returned from the region of Tyre and, and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. He could not hear and he could not speak properly. They begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up to heaven and he sighed and said, Ephathatha, which is be opened. And his ears were open. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the power of Christ. To open ears, to release tongues. Soon he will give sight to the blind, and there is a lot of meaning in that miracle as well. And he does this in a way that even when he instructs them not to tell anyone, they can't help it. It's just spilling out of them. Because of who God is, they can do anything. They, they are unable to do anything but proclaim his grace, his mercy, and his goodness. And, oh, church, there is an opportunity before us today as our team comes. We live in a world, in many ways, that's hard and cold-hearted to the gospel. We have the truth of God's word the authority of God's word. We have the life and the ministry of Jesus. We have the testimony and the encouragement of the saints. We have the ministry of prayer. 
We have all of these things at our disposal so that we might continue on faithfully in the calling that we have to go into the world and make disciples. Friends, be encouraged. Be lifted up through the power of Christ and his word. Father, we thank you for Jesus' example, for the testimony of his ministry, for his faithfulness in training his disciples for what lied ahead. Lord, so many of them would lay down their own lives for the church. They cared so much. They knew. They had walked with the Son, the Son of God and the Son of Man, and they were changed and transformed forever. Lord, it's our desire that you would indwell us in a way that would cause us to be effective in this world. Help us to be salt and help us to be light with the tools that you have given us to reach people for today. Lord, where we need to be bold and courageous and press against human tradition, give us the boldness and the courage to do it, but remain faithful. Lord, where we're scared and where we fear rejection and opposition, help us to learn from the testimony of the early church and the testimony of the disciples and the testimony of Jesus to keep on going, even in the face of opposition, and to remain faithful. And Father, we want to glorify you along the way in Jesus' name. Amen.